Well, everybody is uh, getting their seats. Just a reminder on the announcements that we're going to have on the, I think it's the 21st, is that right? Saturday, the 21st, is uh, the men's prayer breakfast. So make sure you've got that uh, down on your calendars. And then, trying to think if there was, oh yeah, Camp Arete people leave Saturday morning. And so I think they're doing okay on their finances from the last report I had, but we need to pray for them and pray for their safety on the road and pray for those kids uh, at camp this next, this next week. So while, um, there we go. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. I hope that today is a day when you have enjoyed your uh, walk with the Lord, your fellowship with the Lord, and I hope that you are enjoying your and learning a lot from your Bible reading. This, um, I didn't mention it at the beginning of this month, but we're halfway through the year right now, a little more than halfway through the year, so uh, everybody ought to be making good progress this year as they read uh, read through their Bible. That was interesting on the Israel trip, how many people were reading through their Bible, talking about their Bible reading plans, and everybody was doing different plans, but it was exciting to see everybody reading through their Bible. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful privilege it is that we have a relationship with you, that we can walk with you, we can learn from you, about you, through God the Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us. Father, it's a great joy that we can come together and be refreshed as we study your word together. Father, we pray for those who are in this congregation. There are quite a few that are facing uh, serious health problems, some which may be fatal, And, Father, we pray comfort for their families, that they would be comforted with your comfort. And that, Father, we pray that you would uh, heal uh, those who are uh, facing some really difficult healing circumstances and that you would give the doctors wisdom and just strengthen the medication that they take to do its job. Father, we thank you for your word that cleanses us, refreshes us, and provides the strength we need for the difficulties that we face living in this fallen world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to 
have another flyover. It seems like this is flyover week. On Sunday, we started the flyover of Matthew. Tuesday night, as we're talking about worship, I spent a lot of time going back and forth between Genesis and Revelation and somewhere in between, and it was all, or a lot of it was based on just looking at broad overview patterns in the Scripture. And tonight, what I want to do is uh, do a flyover or a review of what we've learned in First Peter. Because when we start the next verse, which is 5.12, excuse me, 4.12, we start the next verse, we are going into the conclusion for this epistle. There are a lot of similarities, both in theme as well as in structure, between First Peter and James. Both of them are written to Jewish background uh, Christians who are scattered, who are in the diaspora. Both of them focus on the same theme, which is how to face and surmount the challenges, the suffering, the adversity, the undeserved suffering that we face in life. And both of them have a similar structure. They have a main body, and then they have an introduction and a conclusion. In James' epistle, very little is said about the main theme of the epistle, which is introduced in the introduction and reviewed in the conclusion. And the three main points in James' review are talk about different areas in which perseverance in times of testing must be applied. We have the same theme in Peter dealing not just so much with perseverance, but suffering, undeserved suffering, following the example of Christ in suffering and uh, honoring God and glorifying God in how we face and handle undeserved uh, suffering. So as we get into this, I'm reminding you about the basic theme in First Peter, and that is to stand in grace in order to surmount our suffering. As believers, we encounter suffering. Some of it is deserved suffering. Some of it is self-induced suffering. And some of it is, is, is undeserved. It is from uh, those around us who uh, bring suffering into our lives for one reason or another. But specifically in terms of this uh, audience that Peter is addressing, they are facing suffering because of their stand for Jesus Christ, because of their their faith in Christ as the Messiah. And so he goes through basic principles and uh, very important guidance in how to live so that even if we do suffer, we may have our consciences clear that we are handling the suffering in a way that honors and glorifies God and we are uh, suffering for doing right, not for doing wrong. At the end of this epistle, in 1 Peter 5.12, Peter gives a note here, a concluding note. He writes this through his amanuensis. That's a term for a secretary, one who writes down uh, what is dictated to them. Uh, by Silvanus, that's the Latin for Silas, uh, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly 
exhorting and testifying that this, that is what he's communicated in this epistle, is the true grace of God in which you stand. And that is really the theme of this book, is standing in grace. And, and that doesn't mean just taking up a position in grace, but it is living our life on the basis of grace. And one of the things that will come out about grace as we go through this uh, as we have continued this study, is that we often refer to grace with a correct definition. We talk about grace as unmerited favor, undeserved kindness, emphasis on that which is not earned, not deserved, not merited, and that it is an expression of God's favor, his kindness, his goodness to us. But there are places in the scripture, and I remember hearing uh, a sophomore at Dallas Seminary. You know what a sophomore is? A wise fool. And it's typical, whether you're in high school or college or at seminary, a second-year student is often thinks they are wise beyond their education. But he brought up something about grace that I've often thought about. He said, we don't do a good job defining grace because in many passages, grace is, it seems like it's a power. That, that, it, that God is giving us power to do something. And I've thought about that a lot, and it just so happens in the way I've been teaching recently and putting ideas come together. It just occurred to me as I was reading through this, and in a couple of places, grace appears to have this sense of a power. And then it occurred to me, because in the last couple of weeks, I've talked about the figure of speech called the metonymy, which is where a noun, one noun is substituted for another noun because the two stand in some sort of relationship. And usually you have a metonymy of cause for effect. And sometimes you have the metonymy of effect for cause. But what we have here is where grace is the cause of the power that God gives us to face and handle and surmount the problems and adversities of life. And that's why it seems at times when God refers to grace as a power is because it is the source of that power, that sufficient power that God gives us to handle handle problems. It's it's not that grace itself is a power, but it is the motivation God's freely giving that power to us. So we are to stand in that true grace that God has given us. Well, as we've gone through Peter, there are three basic divisions. There's an introduction, there's a conclusion. I'll talk about those at the end. But we have a uh, three basic sections, just as James has three basic sec- sections. The first is from 113 to 210, we are to stand in grace, and it tells us how. We are to gird up the loins of our mind. That is, we are to focus our thinking. It's a strong verse on the importance of mental attitude and focus and on concentration and on avoiding distractions in life. Recently, I was in Albuquerque with Charlie and with Andy Woods, and we were with some other people, and we were all talking about a topic that is common 
in, in the world today among leaders in business, leaders in education, and, that, and leaders in the churches is how do we engage the millennial generation? And this came up especially in conversations. It was a, a conference on marriage and family, what the Bible teaches about basic principles on marriage and family. And everybody there was over 50, over 60, just about everybody. I mean, there might have been one couple in their mid-50s. Everybody else was north of 65. Where were the young people? They were distracted. They're too busy. And this is what came up in conversation is as these parents and grandparents are talking about their children their grandchildren, they say, we can't get them to sit down and focus on the Word because there's so many things that they're, they're doing in life. They're just distracted. They can't figure out what's important, what has enduring value, and so they're just going to the four corners of the earth all the time. And at that point, I realized that they're not the millennials. They are the distracted generation. They're failing the prosperity test because what prosperity has done is to bring them all of these options. And that's the test. Are you going to choose wisely and choose that which, that which you will invest your time in that has eternal consequences? Or are you going to choose poorly, foolishly, and just fritter away your time? Ephesians 5.17, the verse before the verse that talks about being filled by the Spirit, says, redeem the time. We, that's part of the test in the spiritual life is how we use our time. So girding up your loins is an image from racing. It's, it's tying your robe in close and tight so it doesn't get in your way and, dis, and cause you to trip or fall or stumble. And so it's used in, in the thought process to focus your thinking and not be distracted and to think objectively uh, based on the truth of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The second major division is that we're to stand in grace by humble obedience to even unjust authorities. And there, Peter goes through the whole uh, panorama of different circumstances, servants serving unjust masters, wives with unsaved or maybe unrighteous or uh, uh, unjust husbands, uh, talks about a husband's uh, honoring their wives. They may not be worthy of it. It's all these relationships. And that's a part of the testing we encounter is, is testing in terms of, of people testing. So we're to stand in grace by humble obedience to even unjust authorities. From 2.11 to 3.12, and then from 3.13 to 4.11, we are to stand in grace by focusing on how Jesus suffered unjustly for our sin. That's, that's sort of the, the focal point and theme that runs throughout First uh, Peter, and that is that we are to focus on Jesus. He is the pattern, the model, the example. He deserved no suffering whatsoever, and he suffered more than any of us can ever imagine, and he did it without whining and complaining or retaliating in a sinful manner. He did it without uttering a word until... He was separated from the Father, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the theme that we see developed in uh, Peter is this idea of standing 
in grace. And it has that idea that grace is what enables, it's that power, it, it is what provides the power for us to stand and not fall. So as we go through this, that first part, let's just review it, one thirteen to 2.10, we stand in grace by girding up the loins of our mind. There are five sections here. Spend some time going back over this because the different books will paragraph it a little differently. The first sub-point is in first. 13 of chapter 1. That's where it begins. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. That doesn't mean to avoid alcohol. It means to think clearly without something causing distraction, causing you to think in a subjective or a fuzzy way. So it has that idea of thinking objectively and rest your hope. That's your focal point. Rest your hope. Confident expectation. Where is God taking us? Have the end game in mind. Living today in light of eternity, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When will that be? This is at the second coming. This is when, when we realize the rewards, not when we're given them, they're distributed at the judgment seat of Christ, but when we return with Christ, that is when we take up those roles and responsibilities that we receive at the judgment seat of Christ. So we're to rest our hope fully on grace by focusing on our thinking and focusing on the future. Second, uh, that's in 1 Peter 1.13. Second, we're to be holy. This is stated most clearly in 1 Peter 1.15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, this verse has really been used to justify a tremendous amount of self-righteousness and legalism in the history of Christianity, and that's not the focal point at all. Self-righteousness and legalism are always energized by pride and arrogance, and that is always self-destructive. It is the fruit of the sin nature. Holiness has its core meaning as being separate, separate to God, separated to his service, And so that it becomes a theme as we get deeper into this epistle is that we are to serve God and glorify him. And you can't serve God and glorify him if you haven't made a decision to be set apart to his service. That doesn't mean that you're going to be a missionary in uh, Timbuktu somewhere. It doesn't mean that you're going to go into a professional ministry. It just means you're going to live a life of service to God so that God is glorified. And so the command here that because God is holy, and that word holy means distinct or unique or one of a kind, then we are to be holy in all of our conduct. Our conduct should be governed by that principle that we are serving this unique, distinct, one-of-a-kind creator God. The third division in this section it comes up then in uh, the following verses in First Peter 1, uh, 17. I believe it goes down to uh, 21. First goes from 117 to uh, 121. And the idea there is that we're to conduct ourselves in fear. Now, we've talked a lot about fear and fearing the Lord on Tuesday nights when we've talked about worship. That fear of the Lord isn't a being terrorized by God, but there is an element of terror that we have seen when we focus on these great believers like Isaiah 
and the Apostle Paul, although he was not a believer at the time, uh, John on the Isle of Patmos, that when they see God, when they have that um, vision of God, they fall flat on their face as if dead. They are, it, it is fearful for a sinner to be in the hands of an angry God. That was a famous message by Jonathan Edwards, I think, two days ago. We had the, uh, what would that be, the 300th anniversary of that message that uh, helped stimulate the um, um, First Great Awakening. I don't think it was the 300th anniversary. I think it's like the 250th anniversary. So we're to conduct ourselves in fear. This is Uh, At the conclusion of verse 17, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Who are we afraid of? We're not afraid of anybody, but we're, we're fearful because of the high calling that God has given us. And we are to serve him in a way that gives honor and reverence to God. And this word fear shows up several times. So first thing I want to point out here is that we are all to conduct our lives in fear. Then there's some specific instances that are brought up as we uh, look through this. For example, in uh, we have 117, then in 1 Peter 2.7, he says, um, uh, you know, uh, honor the king and fear God. So we are to fear God Every believer should fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a deep, profound, reverential respect that borders on fear in the sense that if I don't obey the Lord, there are serious consequences. 1 Peter 2.18, servants are to be submissive to their masters with all fear. So that fear toward your master, that respect for authority has its root, though, first in respect for the authority of God. If children are not taught respect for the authority of God and to fear God as young children, then they're always going to have problems as they grow older with authority because they don't understand that authority isn't arbitrary. It's grounded in God's universe. God is the creator. Wives are to uh, be obedient to their husbands and hopefully by their chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Not, this is not terror. This is not they're afraid that their husband will beat them or some other form of abuse. But it's that respect and reverential fear, uh, respect and reverential honor for authority. We see the same thing in 1 Peter 3.15 that we are all to be ready to give a defense with meekness and fear. So fear is not a sense of timidity because as Paul told Timothy, we didn't have, weren't given a spirit of fear or timidity, but a spirit of boldness. And that's a different sense to the word fear. This is fear in the sense of realizing the significance of what we're doing and serving uh, Almighty God, a majestic God, the Creator God, and carrying out His his mandates for our lives. So fear, conducting ourselves throughout the time of our stay here in fear is very much a part of the Christian life, and it's not a popular doctrine. You think back in what you have read, and maybe when you were younger, you would hear people referred to as a God-fearer. 
somehow that's become an antiquated concept in the world. That's old-fashioned to be a God-fearer. It's biblical to be a God-fearer. That's the beginning of wisdom. So we stand in grace by loving one another. And when we have this command to love one another, this is in 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. And there in 1 Peter 1, 22, we're told, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through, uh, through the Holy Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another. So we have the term Philadelphia for brotherly love in the first reference, and then we have uh, agapao, to love one another, in the second one, to love with, fervently with a pure heart. This is reiterated a couple of other times in in um, in First Peter. It's a major theme in First Peter three three eight. We're told finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers. Uh, be tender-hearted and be curious, and then it's repeated again in four eight. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So this is how we stand in grace. Do those people we love deserve it? Not always. So love is an expression of our grace orientation, that we understand God loves us when we're enemies to God, when we hate God, when we're obnoxious to God. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us whether we're worthy or unworthy because it's grounded in his character. This is what is to be true of the believer. We are to love others, even if they're persecuting us, even if they're abusing us, even if they're uh, causing suffering and persecution, even if it is a master and we're the servant and they are uh, attacking us and they are harsh to us, we are to obey them, submit to them. Then the next thing that we find is uh, the fifth command in this section, which gets us into 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. We are to desire the pure milk of the word that we can grow by it. That is a mandate. This is how we stand in grace. We have to learn about grace. We have to uh, learn about the Lord's grace to his people as it's been revealed throughout history and that is revealed in Scripture. So we desire the pure milk of the word that we may... Uh, build, uh, be built up or be edified for a future priestly service. Now, one of the things that I pointed out Tuesday night as we were looking at, at, um, for, at Genesis chapter 2, that I'm going to tie it in here just a little bit, and then we're going to develop it more on Tuesday nights as we're talking about service. But God created man... Male and female, he created them, and he created them in his image to do what? Genesis 1, 25 to 27, to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. He is to rule over creation. He is God's representative to rule over creation. That is, those terms are used as Genesis 1 describes the actions of the sixth day. On the seventh, I mean, excuse me, on in the second chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, we get an expansion of what went on. And after God created Adam, he told him that his purpose was to 
Uh, it's usually translated to tend and to uh, keep the garden. And I pointed out the other day that the language that you find in the Hebrew there, uh, there's a way in which you indicate a, uh, if you're going to say to keep it, then you put a certain kind of a suffix on the end of that of that word. And it looks like it might be what's called a feminine suffix at the end of that verb, but because it lacks a dot, it's not a suffix. It's not saying to keep it, because for one reason, if it was a feminine suffix, garden is not a feminine noun. So you've got a problem there. couldn't refer to that. So what is what does it mean? Is God talking about Adam and Eve, that they're supposed to be gardeners? Well, there's no weeds and there's no problems with watering. They don't have to get up extra early every morning to water everything. So what's going on there? And as I pointed out Tuesday night, when these words are used together throughout uh, Exodus and Leviticus and other parts of the Pentateuch, it refers to priestly service. So we have the role of man defined as a ruler in chapter 1 and as a, a doing priestly function in chapter 2. He's a king priest. Adam and Eve are king priests in the garden. And as I pointed out Tuesday night, we looked at Revelation 22, and we are to serve God as priests and kings in the eternal state. So man's original role and function was to be a king priest in the fall, we have to recover what it means to be a king priest. We have to develop that. That's part of why we must learn to worship, is that develops that priestly aspect of our spiritual life. And then uh, this enables us then to fulfill that future role to be king priests in eternity. And so we see this theme going all the way through here, and that's what Peter's alluding to in First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 10 in order to uh, challenge us that it's through a study of the word that we develop those those priestly skills. We are to desire, that's a command, we are to desire the pure milk of the word that we may grow by it. If any of you have ever been around a hungry baby, you know how he expresses his desire for food. He screams for it, and that's how Christians should be, but unfortunately... They seem to have had their appetites destroyed by bad teaching. Okay, then we come to the second division, which starts in chapter 2, verse 11, and goes through chapter 3, verse 12. And here the focus is on their conduct among the Gentiles. Again, Peter is written to Jewish background believers. They're in the diaspora as mentioned, they're scattered. That's how it's translated in First Peter one one and two, and so they have. They are. This term always refers to the diaspora. So now they are to stand in grace by humble obedience to even unjust authorities, even if they're in a position of of suffering and it's not deserved and it's coming from someone in authority. They are to respond in humility and in grace. So this is the second area. It's part of grace orientation. They are to have honorable conduct among the Gentiles in 1 Peter 2, uh, 11 and 12. Verse 12 just emphasizes the positive, having uh, your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. It's contrasted to uh, 
fleshly lusts, and their command in verse 11 is the negative, abstain from fleshly lusts, and verse 12 is have your honorable conduct among uh, the Gentiles. That's the first thing that's said. Then the second thing that's said is they're to submit to every ordinance for the Lord's sake, even if they think it's unfair or unjust, unless it conflicts with or contradicts the Word of God, the revealed Word of God. Otherwise, uh, you're to submit to the ordinance for the Lord's sake. You may think that um, the way we uh, assess taxes in this country is unfair. Uh, You may think that property taxes are not legitimate, but that doesn't give you the right to not pay them. Uh, They may or may not be. There's no mandate that way. There were certainly unjust taxes in the Roman Empire, and Jesus said to Peter, render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. It doesn't mean that in our system we can't fight to change the law code and the tax code, but we have a responsible responsibility there. That is part of being grace-oriented, and it shows submission to even unjust authorities. First uh, Peter 2.13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Notice it's for the Lord's sake. It's not for your sake. It's not for our sake. It is for the Lord's sake because of the underlying issue of authority in the uh, angelic conflict. The third thing is that slaves would be were to be submissive to even your harsh masters. A lot of people say, well, I can understand being obedient to a good master, but why do I have to be obedient to that horrible, mean, unjust person? That's because the principle of authority is is runs through the scripture. That was the original sin of Satan was to violate authority. And so we can't be grace-oriented and humble if we have a problem with authority. So we have to learn to submit to those who are in authority, even if we disagree with them, even if we even if they mistreat us. Slaves be submissive to your masters with all fear not only to the good and gentle, in other words, not only when it's convenient for you, but also to the harsh, but also when it's inconvenient to you or you don't like it or don't want to do it. Then the fourth area that is brought out here is really a key paragraph in the whole uh, epistle, and that is the example of Jesus Christ. This example of Christ going through unjust suffering and submitting to unjust authorities is used at the heart of this section and at the heart of the next section. That is the most difficult thing to get around, is that Jesus willingly submitted himself to unjust authorities, even to the point of of brutal physical violence and going to the cross where the perfect, sinless, impeccable, eternal second person of the Trinity was crucified and paid the penalty on the cross for our sins. So this is the key paragraph. This, the idea of Jesus suffering for our sins, the unjust for the just, is brought out even in the introduction. So these themes continue to be developed as you go through this, this epistle. In 1 Peter 2.21, uh, we read, For to this you were called. That has the idea, this is your appointment. 
This is what God called all of us to do to one degree or another. This is our destiny in time. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, Americans just really don't like to suffer. Not at all. We want our comforts and everything else, and we want people to pretty much leave us alone. But that's not going to happen in the future, especially for believers. And it doesn't always happen in this life. We we have to deal with with um, employers, with businesses, with corporations that are not fair and just in their policies. We have to deal with a government that's not always fair and just in its policies. But the role of the believer is not to go out and throw temper tantrums in the streets. You can work through legal means in order to change things but if they don't change then we don't uh, then we don't become angry and we don't violate the law in order to uh, force force it to change so we are to follow this example of the Lord Jesus Christ and then this is applied in the next major paragraph to the roles of wives and husbands in first Peter 3 1 through 6 excuse me, 1 through 7. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, if we take the analogy from the previous command for slaves to submit to their servants, I'm not saying that the husband-wife relation is one of a master to a servant, but this principle applies that even if the husband isn't doing it the way you think they ought to do it, uh, you can have a conversation about it. You talk about it. You try to work it through. You don't just say yes or yes or three bags full. And men, if you're a godly leader, you don't say, try to tell your wife that that's how they're supposed to respond when you make a decision. You work things together. You have a conversation. But when the husband decides that something should be a certain way and the wife disagrees, that's that's when it's submission. It's not easy. It's not something that is necessarily pleasant. It's easy to submit to somebody who's going to do it your way and wants you to do it your way. It's difficult when it's somebody who wants to do it a way that you don't really agree with, but it's not a moral issue. It's not a biblical issue. And so you're to submit to your own husband. Husbands, on the other hand, are to dwell with their wives in understanding. They're not a tyrant in the home. They're not there to dictate to the wife and tell her to do everything that she's supposed to do and how they're going to do it. There has the, the, what governs all of these relationships are commands we see throughout Scripture to love one another and to submit to one another. Uh, those, so this idea of wives submitting to their husbands or husbands uh, dealing with your wives and understanding are not unusual. We're all to deal with every other believer with understanding, and we're all to love one another, every believer, and we are all to submit to one another. Those are the standard commands for how believers are to relate to other believers. And it's because of, uh, I think, issues related to the fall. These are brought out specifically in terms of husbands and wives uh, because of certain tendencies that come out of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse, verse 15.
the sixth thing that we see mandated here is a repetition of what we saw in the first section, that is to love one another. In 1 Peter 3, uh, 8 to 12, it's emphasized again, and in 1 Peter 1, 22, which we already looked at, and 1 Peter 4, 8, this becomes a, num- a, a major mandate. Why? Because if we're going to stand in grace, grace means we treat one another in grace, and that means we love one another. You can't love one another without an understanding of grace, and you can't be gracious to one another and stand in grace if you're not loving one another. So this gets repeated in each one of these sections of the epistle. And Peter's telling them to do this in difficult circumstances, in unpleasant circumstances. They're being persecuted by their neighbors. They're being rejected by family members. They're dealing with various degrees of unjust and undeserved suffering. And he's reminding them that as a believer, your role in the family of God is to carry out the mandates, the protocols of God's uh, behavior for his people, for his family. And that is to ultimately at the very top is to love one another. First Peter 3.8, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Now this is talking about who? The master and the servant, the husband and the wife, the parents and the children. All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, and be tender-hearted, and be courteous. You know, probably about 60% of marriage problems could be resolved if parents, the parents of those who are married to each other, had really done a good job teaching them good manners and how to be courteous to people, even in circumstances where they were upset or emotional or angry. We are to be courteous to one another no matter what. You never know when you're getting upset with some tech person on the other end of the line that that person may be a believer. We had a situation Bryce was telling me about happened two or three weeks ago where he was calling into a a tech support business in relationship to the Dean Bible Ministries website. And so he gets vectored around to two or three different people and ends up with this one tech help person And the tech help person's response was, I'm honored to work on Dr. Dean's website. So here's this guy who's out there working for one of the the hosts for the website, and you call in for help, and you know that, what would that be like if all of a sudden you just got real mad and were ripping somebody's head off, and and, um, uh, it was somebody who was on the website saying, well, that person just doesn't know anything about the doctrine that they're supposed to apply. So that's just a reminder. We should be on our best behavior at all times. Okay, then we come to the third section. Third section, we're to stand in grace by focusing on how Jesus suffered unjustly for our sin. This is in 3.13 down to 4.11, the section that that we just finished, that we just completed. We're to stand in grace. Again, the emphasis is on gracious behavior to others, even in the midst of undeserved or unjust suffering. So the first point that Peter makes in this section is that is about suffering for righteousness' sake. We're not suffering because we were unrighteous. In fact, he says it's better to suffer for doing right than for doing wrong in this section. That's how he uh, ends it in verse 17. For it is better, 
He says it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I took these out of order, but verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you've done everything right. You get to check off all the boxes. You were on your best behavior. And even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. God is going to bless you for that. Maybe not now, maybe in eternity. And he says, don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. For And then skip a couple of verses. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So this is the first point that Peter makes in this section from 13 to 17. And, we ha- and the standard, the example for this, of course, is going to be Jesus. That's going to be the next section in verses uh, uh, 3.18 to 22. We have a second focus. It was in the middle of the second section. Now it's repeated. In the, it's in the middle of the third section. When the Holy Spirit repeats things, it's almost as if he wants us to pay attention to it. We have to focus on Jesus. He is the example for us of unjust suffering. In verse 18, we read, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He is our example. And then we come to the third section, which is in uh, the first six verses of chapter 4, which is applying this to every believer. We are then become the object of the application here in verse 1, It says simply, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, thinking the same way Jesus thinks, arm yourself with the same mind, for he who suffered, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The focal point there, as I pointed out when we studied it, is that we are to arm ourselves with the same mind, the thinking of Christ. If we don't study the Word of God and learn the Bible, Uh, We don't have a clue who Jesus is. Most Christians don't have, you know, they say they love Jesus, but if you were to ask them to write four or five pages on who Jesus is, most of it would be heresy and apostasy because they don't know enough about the Bible to know who Jesus is. They've created an image in their mind about who Jesus is, and they're worshiping that image. That's just idolatry. It's mental idolatry, and that's that's how most people are. I pointed out the other day, that in, um, I think it was last week on the 4th of July, that the week before, First Baptist Church of Dallas celebrates Freedom Sunday. And Robert Jeffers, who's the pastor there, is a very strong uh, Bible teacher, a believer in inerrancy and infallibility of the Word. And he was going to preach a sermon. I'm not sure if it was a sermon for that Sunday or he was going to start a series. But what he did was they, the church put up these billboards saying that America was a Christian nation. And this was to introduce this sermon series and give it some publicity in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The mayor of Dallas took umbrage with that. He got really angry, and he made all kinds of statements about the Jesus that I know would not do that. Well, that tells me right away that Jesus he knows is a false Jesus. It's an idol that he's created. He doesn't know who the Jesus of the Bible is. And that's the way a lot of Christians are today. They're in rebellion against God. They're, um, uh, they're affirming homosexual marriage. 
They're affirming a lot of immorality in our culture, and that's not what Jesus would do. Jesus would deal with it in grace, but also he would not compromise what's righteous and just. So we have to have the same thinking of Jesus, and that is going to be grace-oriented thinking. So that takes us into the last part, sort of the conclusion of this section from 3.13 to 4.11, and it's a focus on grace. And it's wrapping up, it's not the conclusion to the whole epistle, but it's a conclusion to this third section, and the emphasis is on grace. And I tried to summarize it in one sentence, but it was about four or five really short commands. We're to pray. We're to be serious and watchful. There's that word to have that sober thinking, that watchful, objective thinking of Scripture uh, as the basis Uh, For prayer, be serious and watchful or sober or objective in your thinking and watchful in your prayers. Second, we're to have fervent love uh, for one another. We are to be, third, hospitable to one another without grumbling. Fourth, we we have gifts and we are to serve uh, one another as good stewards of the grace of God. And we are to do this in verse 11 for the purpose of glorifying God through Jesus Christ. And so, again, we see these three basic points that we are to stand in grace. Now, this epistle, though, has a beginning and an end. I've been told by writers, I don't think I've ever done this, but I know that at the end of writing a book or a paper, that I've often had to go back and to complete rewrites of both the beginning and the end. I have been told that it's a good idea, just ignore your introduction and ignore your conclusion, write the main body, and then after you've written what you're going to say, then you know how to introduce it, and then you can write the conclusion. It's just the opposite when you're reading a book. When you're reading a book, before you get into the body of the book, read the introduction so you can learn what the author is telling you to read, what his purpose is in writing and what you should learn. Read the conclusion so you get a good summary of what he has said, and then go through and hit the high points of the book, skim the table of contents, hit the high points in the book, go through the chapters, read the introductions and conclusions in the chapters, and then you can get a great idea of of the flow of his thinking, and then you can spot read different sections. When uh, when you're in a, someone's in a Ph.D. program, and they have to read an enormous amount of literature in a short time uh, in order to take their exams, Uh, they have to master maybe 220 to 250 volumes. The only way you can do this is to be able to summarize every work on a 3x5 card, and then you've got 253 by 5 cards, and then you've got to memorize those, and then then you can survive the, the exams. That's the voice of experience. So you have to learn how to read sometimes a multi-volume work in a week. And that's the only way you can do it, and you have to learn to, to think differently about how you read through books. Well, we have an epistle here that has an introduction and it has a conclusion, and much like James, the introduction and conclusion tell us what the theme of this epistle is all about. At the beginning, I summarize the uh, opening introduction, which goes from verse 3 down through verse 12. 
that what what Peter is saying here is living in light of eternity means we can rejoice in the midst of the present trial because our love for God enables enables us, that should read us, enables us to focus on the glories to come. In summary, it's living today in light of eternity. That's the same thing James says over in James chapter 1. It's very, very similar. In fact, a lot of the vocabulary is very much the same. That he talks in this section about salvation, and that salvation in one sense is talking about our past justification, but in another sense it's talking about the salvation that is coming. Verse 9, receiving the end of our faith, that is the ultimate result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. That's not talking about the beginning, salvation, justification, salvation, when we trust Jesus as Savior. That is talking about glorification, salvation, when we reach the end. And what's interesting is the next verse, uh, verse 10, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. And then in the next verse, it talks about them searching the scriptures in relation uh, to how they testified about the sufferings of Christ. That was Christ's end game before he was glorified. And the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. See, right there he introduces the main theme of the epistle. The sufferings of Christ happen first, and it yields the glories. And so that's introduced, and those basic principles are introduced in those in that first section from one three to one twelve. And then at the conclusion, we learn that living in light of eternity means that we can rejoice. Wait a minute, I just copied that over today, and I didn't finish it. Got interrupted by a phone call. Okay, what happens in the conclusion is he returns to this theme, and we see that in. Um, I've already gone through the introduction here. I want to skip down to here. Uh, down to, he's going to lead to this conclusion, which I've already talked about in 5.10 and 5.12. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Then we're going to skip verse 11. He says, By Silas, our faithful brothers, I consider him. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So when we look at the contrast with the first part, the first part is talking about how they stand in their trial. And then when Peter comes back to that topic in the conclusion, in verse 12, he will say, uh, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is uh, tr- to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. See, he brings out at this opening of the conclusion the same themes that are emphasized in the first in the opening introduction, and that is rejoicing in the midst of the fiery trial because you understand the nature of the sufferings and then the glory, uh, the glory of Christ. And then if we look, go on into just this opening paragraph of the conclusion, it reads, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, that is undeserved suffering, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. See this theme of suffering and then glory 
that is introduced in First uh, Peter one nine and ten is then then brought back to the conclusion. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, or an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian or for your beliefs as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now that takes us to verse 16, which is this opening paragraph. And then we're going to to get into some other matters that come up. Uh, Verse 19 repeats that theme, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good uh, as to a faithful creator. Then we get into uh, some responsibilities in chapter 5 about the elders who are to lead and and, um, uh, the congregation and they are to shepherd the flock of God which is among you serving as overseers and what should be their motive and then they're going to receive a crown of glory so they're going to suffer in this life but there will be ultimate uh, glory that will come then there's an emphasis on humility in verses 5 through 10 that's essential to being grace oriented and then Peter will wrap it up. So that's what we're going to be covering in the next uh, few months as we go through the conclusion and then tying all of this together again. But the theme that goes through here is that we have to stand in grace. You have to understand what grace is. You have to be grace-oriented in all of your relations, all of the circumstances, even when and especially in undeserved or unjust suffering, And then this will culminate in the glorification of God through Jesus Christ. And as we serve God, we too will ultimately be glorified after we are face-to-face with the Lord and rewarded in the judgment seat of Christ. And this is how Paul, I mean, how Peter will end. He said, may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus... uh, After you have suffered a while, mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Those words, establish, strengthen, and settle, all have words related to standing, being established in the grace of God. So we'll come back next time, and now we will start to go verse by verse through this section from 1 Peter 4.12 to the end of the epistle. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of the great challenge that we have before us in this epistle to stand in your grace, stand firm in true grace, to truly understand what grace means in terms of humility, in terms of orientation to authority, in terms of Uh, being able to rejoice even in the midst of undeserved and unjust suffering. And, Father, that it is through this that you work to mature us and to build into us the character of Jesus Christ. And now, Father, we pray this in his name, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.